Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. I was wearing the wrong foundation shade for years and no one told me. Thanks, guys. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the bold new beauty brand using AI to shade match. Their best-selling Woke Up Like This foundation has 50,000 five-star reviews and is a total game changer for my glow up. Plus, it's cruelty-free. You can even try before you buy at home for 14 days, risk-free. Take the quiz and get your shade of flawless at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Miniography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound, and I'm also the host of this particular program. Now, as some of you already know, Miniography is a little bit different than what we normally do here at Filmography. These are one-off episodes meant to spotlight a certain topic or filmmaker, and this month we are talking the Oscars, since everyone is talking ad nauseum about the Oscars and almost nothing else. And with that said, I'd like to introduce my co-hosts for this month's episode. Hi, I'm Mike Rothman, Editor-in-Chief of Consequence of Sound and a huge Oscar buff. Hi, also, I'm Clint Worthington, Senior Writer for Consequence of Sound and Editor-in-Chief of the soon-to-be premiered film website, The Spool. Ooh, very excited. And has great artwork. Thank you. Can't wait to see it unspool. What? How many times have you done that already, Clint? You can tell me. I don't know if we want to unravel this particular thread. <laughs> so, oh. Well, then the Oscar for best puns go to. Yeah. Um, I, I, I need to take us somewhere else because we're going down a bad road already with this episode. <laughs> anyway, the Oscars. Maybe Vigo the... can drive us down that road. <laughs> The 91st Academy Awards will take place on Sunday, February 24th, 2019, so we're already less than a month away from the ceremony. I already feel like we're only about a month or so away from last year's ceremony, so this has me all kinds of thrown. With that said, you know, we were going originally to record this episode right after the nominations were announced, and we ended up deciding, you know, we want to let it breathe, want to see what people have to say, want to see what comes out in the wake of the nominations. And I'm glad that we did, because there's actually been quite a bit to talk about since the announcements last week. But to start things off, I just want to pose a very simple question. Seven days on, how are you guys feeling about this year's crop of nominees? Well, if you ask me, I think Bohemian Rhapsody has great chances now. I think the developments that have happened in the past week have just been unbelievable for its chances, particularly for uh, Best Director for Brian Singer. No, I'm just joking. He wasn't nominated. Uh, This entire campaign is trying to ignore that... Noted pedophile, uh, Brian Singer, isn't involved uh, with this production. And um, so as far as I'm concerned, a week later and removed from these nominations, I still think it's one of the worst ideas to have that film nominated. But, you know, that's just my two cents looking at the initial slate. So 
I've been told that consequences <laughs> sound is mean to the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. And if that's something that upsets you, the listener, you uh, might just want to try another episode of filmography because I don't think we're going to be much nicer to it. Bohemian Rhapsody is certainly one of the biggest stories, but I think the thing that's almost sort of heartening is that coming away from it, most of the nominees this year, I would argue, are good to great movies. And for as much as we can get bogged down in the endless hot take cycle of chiding the handful of movies that have left us baffled as to their nomination, you know, 2018 was a great movie year. And even though we're going to discuss a little later in the show how reflective these nominees really were of that year, it's still a pretty good class overall. Yeah, I guess the general takeaway is I've got I've left I've been left with the feeling that it's a pretty safe year. But even then, like. Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody aside, like, yeah, I, I think they're largely solid takes and it might just be a testament to how good movies were in 2018 mm-hmm. that like so many of our pet movies didn't make it in and this crop is still largely fine. I do love that the favorite is is like one of the highest, has the most nominees out of it. That was a nice surprise. That was cool. I, yeah. I mean, because I didn't even expect it to get like best director at all. You know? mm-hmm. Well, and I think that even more than last year, you're starting to see a little bit of that much vaunted shift from a few years back to bring younger members into the Academy, to bring a broader diversity of tastes mm-hmm. into the Academy. Everybody knew that that was going to be a slow process in ter- terms of sort of shifting the way- away the Oscars from the, at worst, generally stodgy traditions that they tended to honor with the nominees year to year. You know, there's a reason that the Oscar movie is sort of an identifiable subgenre unto itself at this point. And I think you're starting to see the needle shift. But then I would actually agree with Clint. You're still seeing like a fairly safe version of that shift so far. Yeah, like Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody still feel like the quintessential Oscar movies, which is which is um, interesting because I almost feel like our idea of what constitutes an Oscar movie is so closely tied with like Miramax and Weinstein produced stuff. So after that, it feels like we're sort of throwing that particular baby out with this very ugly bathwater. Um, so possibly this is an opportunity for us to, you know, champion this, these other, these other things. Um, and you know, there's plenty of novelty otherwise. I mean, the fact that a Marvel movie is nominated for best picture is up for, is a subject for discussion as well. Yeah. I mean, having Black Panther as a nominated film is a huge deal. I mean, that's a, that's a, that in itself is a big evolution for the Oscars, but at the same time, what's really disappointing for me about the safe choices this year is that they're so like mired in controversy for both of them that I don't understand that first off they're they're both not great films <laughs> first off I mean I know that's subjective and you can say that but like Bohemian Rhapsody has been pretty much maligned by all critics and is just mired in controversy like I said before and then like with Green Book even before the voting started for Oscars like there was there was I mean the screen all the stuff that has happened with Nick Villalongo like the stuff with like Vigo the stuff with like like Peter Fairley that all like pretty that all dropped prior to the voting began so I'm just like interested to like know why I, I get why some safe movies get in but why like why out of all the safe movies that actually even dropped last year these would still squeeze and eke by like that's just baffling to me still well and I think 
it exists sort of at the intersection of the points you guys have both just made because Clint to yours about, you know, like the definition of a safe movie. I think that definition has also become really malleable now because at the end of the day, like we can argue about the issues of queer representation inherent in Bohemian Rhapsody and how Freddie Mercury is presented in particular, but a movie built around a canonical Hollywoodized heroization of a known homosexual performer who died of AIDS during the height of that era would have been pretty verboten to the Academy Awards not that long ago in history. Good movie or not, that would have been considered pretty bold, especially how heroically it paints him, which everyone in this room would probably argue is to a fault. Mm -hmm. But even so, that's, you know... It's, I wouldn't argue that it's a traditional Oscar movie in the way that Green Book certainly is. But I think when you look at a film like Green Book, it's dealing in something that's almost as old as Hollywood. The 20th century was rife with these movies, comedies, dramas, whatever have you, exploring like racial tensions in this way where you're able to walk out of the theater at the end of two hours feeling like you just saw a pat contained story in which the problem of racism was solved. And I think that's the problem that like film and really art is going to keep keep coming back to until it eventually learns its lesson, which is like, there are certain things that you are disservicing by presenting them in a pat way. And I would argue that's where a lot of the blowback and frustration with the film comes from. It's not that people seem to especially hate the concept of it. It's that it presents its concept as though not only is it one of the first comments on this idea to ever be put forward, but that it's going to solve a problem as though nobody's ever come up with its particular solution until now. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the Force Awakens version of uh, Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> like, <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, it's just the same thing again and again being passed on as this like novel, you know, film that, that, that came out. And that's that seems to be like the back padding that the Academy loves to do all the time, except that you'd think that after especially the last five years alone, three years alone, they would have moved on from that considering the films that have won in the past. I, I just I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, I think it's important for us to remember that Green Book's nominations are really just kind of a catch up uh, to finally give the Peter Farrelly the Oscar he deserves oh, for yeah. uh, Stuck on You. And I don't know. I think, you know, as we go on here, because in a minute I'm going to shift us over to talking the best picture nominees at large. But I think one thing to really consider is, again, in the case of the Oscars, particularly now, they are trying to answer to so many different segments of tastes that it's always going to be a little dissatisfying. And it's the same. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't criticize the Oscars for being obsolete in the way I would the Grammys by a long shot. But I think they suffer from similar issues, which is in a marketplace where tastes are so fragmented and so sectionalized that Netflix has taste clusters to help recommend you movies and shows you'll like based on the things you've already liked. <laughs> like it's hard. Gum. It's harder and harder to find, again, those consensus movies everyone can rally around. It's why something like Black Panther, something like A Star is Born catching on is all the bigger a deal because it opens the door for populist hits, but ones that also don't talk down to their audience in every case. Right, and we were talking about 
Um, we were talking about this last week, and then we just rem- we almost forgot that for a, a few months there, there was going to be a popular film category at this particular mm-hmm. ceremony, pretty much as a reaction to things like Black Panther getting you know such critical acclaim, but knowing that it was going to be like accessible or populist enough that it wasn't going to like become a typical Oscar thing. So this almost you know becomes you know a, a backlash against that too I, I actually think this is the most populist oscars in the long shot long while i mean like I mean, most of the the choices are all mainstream productions with the exception of what the favorite and maybe roma and roma is distributed on netflix so everyone can see it i mean those two the only ones that well, are the, the kids entire offer black klansman <laughs> no but the well, but but again, go these... back to black klansman compared to all of spike lee's yeah, productions the last 10 years it's one of his most accessible yeah. works like it's basically just a scorsese film that that he like he leans on like on that sort of model and he's basically said that as much in our interview he's basically he was saying like you know i had i brought it into this this story that seems to be as as accessible movie and like i you know and i think a lot of critics have definitely um you know piled on that but i i think even that to to actually look at see is like the the more alternative stuff that's on here they all seem to hit on a more mainstream level which is basically my point and like so in in that respect i almost see is like the favorite aroma as being like this sort of like kind of on the fringe underdog well and the oscars are never going to throw their arms around the kind of really left of center material that a lot of film critics for instance tend to fetishize you know we hold the sense of discovery at a premium in the way that the oscars will always fluctuate on because for all of the hand waving about how to go about doing it it is a populist ceremony shown on a sunday night and the whole reason we even discussed and entertain the idea of a popular film category in the first place was because the ceremony wanted to be even more accessible. But shifting gears into the movies themselves a little bit more, this is normally the part of filmography where in an episode we'd talk about the films up for discussion. Since we're talking the Oscars, we're going to focus on the eight Best Picture nominees, which are in alphabetical order, Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. Now, of this crop, how are you two struck by what this kind of says about 2018 as a film year? Like, what do you take away in macro from these? I mean, I think it speaks to the eclecticism you were talking about before, where there aren't really any clear, like, except for maybe A Star is Born, these clear populist hits, and maybe Black Panther as well, but Black Panther is revolutionary in and of itself for its sheer nature as both a comic book movie and a black comic book movie too. So like there's there's certain ways in which it's pioneering as well, but also A Star is Born feels the most like the... It, Star is Born and Green Book are both like the old-fashioned kind of... the closest thing to like old Hollywood kind of stuff. But otherwise, you do have a pretty eclectic set of... Uh, of nominees, I mean, I guess apart from the music biopic as well, the the classic walk hard situation that is Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, but yeah, I mean, Vice, as many issues as I have with it, I mean, I guess I get that sort of that's the searing political drama, that's the spotlight of this year. Um, and then there's you know the costume dramas and you know foreign films and all that other kind of stuff. So like, it is an eclectic thing, but I think it does fit into those like molds that sometimes we expect of best picture nominees i agree i actually feel like this crop of nominees looks more like the golden globes in recent years i I think again it just goes back into that whole populist style of filmmaking i mean like all of these these choices seem to come from some sort of 
water cooler discussion thing where you're like, oh, well, I, I've, I, of course I've heard about Black Panther. Everyone was talking about that in the spring. And, you know, oh, yeah, I've heard that that, that Black Klansman is, devi- you know, divisive. And oh, Bohemian Rhapsody, that's a blockbuster nominee. And I, I mean, honestly, with again, with the exception of the favorite, um, I really don't I, I see I feel like all these were chosen specifically because they were buzzworthy like films that like people had heard about. I, I mean, especially the ones that like I mean, if you actually looked at it as from a critical level, the ones that people were really going after. I mean, what are the ones in this in this crop that literally all the critics that we've that we've com- compiled, whether it's Chicago critics or New York critics or L.A. all across the nation, which are the ones that would actually even be slotted up in the top the top of their list? Like the favorite Roma I mean, people were divisive on the Star Is Born, and, and like Black Klansman, I guess I would I would throw up there too, and maybe Black Panther. But I mean, I, it doesn't seem like a lot of the ones that people were actually putting at the top of their list last year, with the exception of maybe Roma, are actually in this crop. Well, and that again goes like, to the issue of like accessibility against broader admiration, which comes back to another interesting question. You know, like what are we now contextualizing as a movie that? was a hit that was to be lauded and more to the point what is the role of that buzz of that dialogue in it because at the end of the day you know the hype cycle around the movie whether we care for it or don't most tend not to is as integral to perception of the movie as the movie itself well i mean look at vice vice was so divisive with critics i mean i i actually saw more like negative reviews than i saw positive reviews at least trending on most of the critics that are you know the top rated critics that are out there and the same goes with especially bohemian rhapsody i mean like bohemian rhapsody i've I've expressed this on twitter like nonstop for the past week i am still just baffled that that like that that it's on here I, i get the blockbuster receipts and all but critically like i mean who voted for this other than just the idea that oh i've heard about it like it's been in the headlines like it made a shitload of money like if you've heard about it more more so than 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 others, you probably know about the controversy. So why would you actually even vote for it then? Also, like, I mean, when you're, I, mean, I understand Best Actor because of Rami Malek, everyone sees the transformative performances and they're like, okay, we well, got to give it to him. But I just, I don't see the merits of Best Picture for this movie, even just from an objective level. When you're actually trying to see it as like, okay, where has it been? Okay, well, pretty much all critics hated it. So who the fuck voted for this thing? Like, I mean, I, so I've to been... nudge on that a bit, though, it's sitting at a 64 on Rotten Tomatoes now. That is more positive than not. And by a pretty decent margin at that. So not at Rotten the... Tomatoes, though, if you're I mean, Rotten Tomatoes is like if you're at a 64 percent, that's pretty low. I mean, the Metacritic has got to be in, in excruciatingly low for for Bohemian Rhapsody. Because oh, that's... no, Metacritic would be. I mean, I guess Metacritic. I'm thinking audience score, would, is, which is I'm sure is incredibly high. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, because so this comes up to a kind of an interesting point that I I always think of about the Oscars like what is the value that you have to put on a movie connecting with a broad audience in a way that movie did as indicative of its quality because here's the one thing I'll say and it might just be anecdotal but a hell of a lot of people I know who do not watch movies like no more than like two three in the theater a year maybe all of them saw and loved Bohemian Rhapsody and whatever we might sit here and say about the quality of the movie, you know, that was kind of a ubiquitous cultural event near the end of the year. Right. And I think there's something to be said for the accessibility of movies like Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody. Because, like, we as critics, um, we tend to deride them for being safe and simple. But that's because we yeah. actively seek out challenging stuff. And audiences are like, well, I don't go out to the movies very often. I saw this. I understood it. It's very easy to get. And there's nothing wrong with digestibility. But that is a factor. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I learned that the hard way when over Christmas I was asked by my family for recommendations. I gave them a copy of fa- The Favorite, and they did not much care for it. And I do think that critic bubble is really key to keep in mind when talking about awards shows sometimes, at least to an end. Because even if it's certainly not the whole equation of it, it is a factor. You know, like there was a lot of talk this year about how. I mean, not only have we had another Oscar year come and go without a female director nomination, but there were movies the like, field was rich this like year. Deborah Granick's work on Leave No Trace, Chloe Zhao's on The Rider, Lynn Ramsey's on You Were Never Really Here, all of which were acclaimed features that had some very real year-end traction, and which, when it came time to open the vote up to the Academy, which tends to be a much broader and more traditionally-minded group of voters... You have to keep something like the accessibility and especially the widely popular accessibility in mind as something that comes at a premium. Yeah, this isn't a Critics Association Award. This is the Academy, which is a weird balancing act of, you know, sort of pop culture critics, sort of people who work in the industry who exist in that equilibrium between like highbrow sensibilities and general audience accessibility. So like... The Oscars in particular are going to be sim- symptomatic of that. Oh, uh, I guess I, I guess I do have a question then. Because um, what are the rules right now for Best Picture? It's like between five and nine? Between five and ten. Between five and ten. Which is a preposterous system because for those of you who may not recall, there was a brief two-year stretch in 2009 and 10 when the nominated films for that year, the field was increased from a flat five nominees to a flat ten. Thanks, The Dark Knight. And the 10 was actually really exciting during that stretch because you got movies like Toy Story 3, like District 9, like A Serious Man that might not have made a traditional Oscar field of five movies, but which were able to fit into a larger group. Then for the 2011 year slash the 2012 Oscars, it would have then been. There was a change to a tiered and weighted vote system where between five and ten nominees can be honored. It seems to generally settle down at an equilibrium of around eight most of the time in the following years. And I find it more and more pointless with every passing season because, it one, it's arbitrary. Two, it really makes you wonder if a movie like, for instance, Cold War, which found a lot of surprise love across the board outside Mm -hmm. of just the foreign language film category, whether a movie like that could have made the field, how close it was for that matter, how many movies were off by one or two points from making it onto this list. You know, it just it opens up a lot of variables that, again... I think the thing that tends to get aggravating about the awards season cycle the most, particularly as it pertains to the Oscars, is the way in which it forces people who care to start pitting films against one another mm-hmm. in this way that isn't even related to the movie quality anymore no, it becomes, after the while. It becomes this this political thing. It's now. kind yeah. of a team sports situation. It, well, and it's armchair strategizing, I would argue. Like, if this movie is getting talked about, that means this movie isn't. Mm-hmm. And it just, it rewires the brain in a way that I think doesn't really help anybody. <laughs> well, no. I mean, honestly, one of the, one of my most, like, frustrating experiences is with, uh, like, the Academy Awards was, like, a couple years 
years ago when everyone lumped people that liked La La Land with people that were like Trumpers versus those who liked Moonlight, who they were actually more for like, you know, liberal Democrats or something like that. And that, that, and that I was all over like Twitter and it drove me fucking nuts. Like, and I was like, wait, wait, just because I like La La Land doesn't mean I don't like Moonlight either. Like, I mean, it just, and I, and I guess we're just kind of prone to do that as a society right now, especially when we set, tend to be so split online and social media, because you're just going to have it become a hive mind on one side and a hive mind on the other. And you're just going to start seeing factions that, I mean, it happens in every sort of medium of pop culture. It happens in sports. It happens in, you know, music. It happens in everything that anything that associates with opinion. So I get it. But God, with the the awards, like Wesley Morris had a great piece. I think it was last year or the year before that was all that was just talking all about this, about how how like the options of whether what movies you like going into the, the Oscar season or the award season in general determines what like your political orientation is and that's so it's it's fucking insane like i I, it's because like some of it makes sense because if obviously if you're going to go put your weight behind american sniper obviously there are political connotations with that film so i could see why people were you know will raise their eyebrows especially since it's not that great a movie but but like when you go into the things like you know for example if someone doesn't think black panther should be you know win best picture all of a sudden you're like a bad guy or something like that i just it becomes like very like people start raising their eyebrows like hmm what do what you what, you know who are you voting on well and, like, and i think and, just, and i think what you're hitting on is like a bigger issue in criticism right now which is when you have people who are absolutely weaponizing affection for a certain movie in really ugly directions see star wars the last jedi for a great example you know when that becomes the dialogue criticism starts kind of becoming reactive to it because it has to be because the responsibility in part at least is to consider the whole equation of the movie in not just as film but in its cultural context as the particular film it happens to be so there's only so much you can really divorce it from that then But yeah, I do think it becomes very competitive in a way that's counterproductive because, again, we're talking about a category full of good to great movies that we were feeling incredibly bullish about at year's end for the most part. And yet the dialogue of the entire first half of this discussion has been these larger contexts because that, in part, is what the awards cycle drags us into. And on that very sunny note, we're going to take a quick mid-tier break and talk more about the awards season cycle that I totally just described as pointless. But we're going to get down into the technical categories, so be sure to stick around because the Oscars might not even be bothering with these themselves this year. More in a minute. And in getting into, you know, the brass tacks production side stuff a little bit more. I also want to remark first on all of the news that's been coming out about next month's ceremony about how an unknown number of the nominations and winners are not going to be read on the main show because not only was it announced that only two of the five nominated best original song performers will be performing live shocker. It's Gaga slash Bradley Cooper and Kendrick Lamar and SZA because we're outright declaring which songs are the most important in the category. Now we're also going to have, what if neither of them win? (laughs) Could you just like, I'm I'm telling you, Tim, it'd be a circle. It would have been like in 2006, if they bought out like Coppola and Lucas and Spielberg to give Scorsese his first Oscar and he didn't win somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Like I, the ceremony is going 
As a quick tangent before we continue on, the ceremony is really going to disservice itself by not reading these categories, because at this point, the only people watching the Oscars as a telecast are the people who really, really still care, for one reason or another. They're hate-watching, they're film enthusiasts, Oscars are a habit and or tradition, what have you. You're not going to draw the casual viewer because as much as television at large is trying to solve the problem of drawing back the casual channel scrolling viewer, viewing habits do not function in this way anymore. Television viewing does not function in this way anymore. No. And making a production that is less appealing to your core fan base in order to draw in a fan base that is not going to be interested in it in any way is suicide in tiny increments. True. I would also argue that you can cut away parts of the show that has traditionally been the most boring parts that m- most people either just leave the room or, you know, get, take a bath and break. Like yes. showing me- all of the best picture nominees with the awards. With- that I enjoy because it's a decent primer for people who might not have seen them all. What I could do without is the recent penchant for skits. For cutaway oh, yeah. skits, oh, for yeah, that too. I mean, like the one where they're not going to have a host. So, for I mean, Jimmy Kimmel yeah. in a movie theater for twenty minutes, interrupting a poor group's screening of A Wrinkle in Time to do a bit. These are the things that are destroying the broadcast. I would argue these are the things that are making it three and a half hours long and nigh unwatchable. Well, I really love when they, uh, you know, they bring out pizza or like you know they take a selfie because stars you know, they're, they're like just us. like us. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and you know who, who even cared who died last year? Let's if you, if you, I mean, they I always just forget say, someone anyway. So it's, if you and not anybody in this room, but if yeah, you, yeah. in the general sense, find it irritating that the Oscars are nothing but a bold-faced celebration of the movie's greatness cool because you're right and the oscars were never going to be for you anyway mm-hmm. you're not going to convince that person by making it less of the thing it is and replacing it with question mark yeah which you know we're sitting here a month out i hope the answer to question mark is not just more skits but i feel very strongly that that's where we're headed that's or absolutely, just like that's absolutely where it's headed or alternately the weird golden globes 2019 version of the show that's over in two hours and nobody is having fun yeah yeah i'm thinking that'll probably be part of it is just like to cut down on runtime more mm-hmm. than anything else which it should i mean some of them go on way too long i mean it's, it's, it's insane well, how long and, these have and, gone And part of the reason we bring this up is that as we get into what would normally be the site segment of the show, we're going to talk cinematography and editing. And it's possible that one or both of these categories might not be announced on the telecast. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Uh, Yeah, because I read something about like cinematography possibly not being read. And I'm like, oh, okay, this uh, ceremony celebrating a visual medium isn't going to celebrate the people who like make that happen, who literally make that happen. Well, and it's especially dispiriting because cinematography is probably the one of the most exciting categories this year. You have the favorite Roma, Cold War, A Star is Born, and Never Look Away in contention. You have a couple interesting choices. You have Cold War, which, as we mentioned in the first half of the show, got a surprising amount of love from the Academy all around, deservedly so. Um, With that and Never Look Away, you have the interesting phenomenon Um, three of the five foreign film nominees are nominated in the cinematography category this year as well. I mean, that's that's so awesome. 
because usually it's just it's you know what a handful of the best picture nominees and then maybe one obscure pick that's in there i mean like this yeah. is it's usually kind of like a celebration of like asc members pretty much mm-hmm. and like i feel like after after we got after we gave um Oh, what, Roger Deakins! After we gave him his Oscar, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, fuck it. There's, there are no rules anymore. We don't need to celebrate. We don't need to which, celebrate anything. Which else. I might add is my favorite win. Oh, like, it was one great. of my favorite wins of the last ten it. years. I could not. I still can't believe that Blade Runner twenty forty nine walked away with like awards last year. Right, it's, it's just so nice. And like, and that's and then, again to that point, like that's why you need these award categories because most of the time these are the most unpredictable choices at at times because it allows for the, some of those narratives to produce. Like, if you don't have these alternatives like choices, it's always just going to boil down to the ones that are pretty much mostly expected when it, when it, when you actually get to the night because by the time you actually get to those big categories like best actress or best actor or you know even the, especially even like director of like best picture you kind of can read the tea leaves at that point where you don't even have the narratives anymore it's just like the implied like okay well this is going to happen i mean obviously there are ex- exceptions every year but it's these other categories that really allow for those kind of surprise wins that that honestly like warrant some of the best speeches too but i mean mm-hmm. hey take it away and add uh you know some cool like you know meme where someone yeah. pops out of a cake or something there's like a 200% chance of like all the Marvel characters dabbing or something and I'm already not looking forward to whatever the show has in store in that regard. Well, it's just going to be advertisements for like literally everything Marvel or anything Disney that's in for but the also com- But also coming back around to the cinematography nominees, it's also a nice compendium of a lot of trends in filmmaking right now, at least mm-hmm. from a visual standpoint. Because you go from Caleb Deschanel's work on Never Look Away, which is very stately and very patient and very composed – to Roma, which has this, it kind of swings between that and this wildly kinetic energy shot in this lustrous black and white. The same can be said for Cold War. And I actually love to see Cold War and Roma nominated alongside one another because it's a perfect example of two very different, distinct black and white yeah. aesthetics. Right. And not just because of the 4-3 Academy ratio that Cold War employs, but because it proves that black and white is not this like mass homogenous genre onto itself. There's a lot to be done with it. There are still exhilarating new stories to be told with it. Even if these are both period pieces that we're talking about. And it's not a case of the artist getting nominated for things like that, where it feels a little like, tokenism slash like oh we're going to celebrate this for for the yeah. novelty of the black and white aesthetic where it's you know within these modes there are two different interesting things happening with it mm-hmm. well and in general you have that you have the eclecticism of the favorite which continues phantom threads starting to use modern technique to tell these very buttoned up stately period mm-hmm. stories and I actually really love to see A Star is Born included because whatever ups and downs the movie has, the look of it is distinct. Now, Rothman, I remember you mentioning around the time it came out that, you know, like that's the upper end potential of what studio filmmaking could be. Mm-hmm. High gloss production value shot to the nines in every single frame. Yeah, no, it, and it could. I mean, I like I think that. You know, I, I really don't understand like a lot of like, the criticisms lodged at A Star Is Born either. Like, I think that there's this like weird sort of like, well, it's a you know against the mainstream sort of mentality that ha- that that has been coming on with this with this movie, which actually, for a film that actually really doesn't have any controversy around it, somehow seems to sag more than Cream Book or Bohemian Rhapsody coming into this award show, which actually seems to be more frustrating to me than anything else because. Honestly, it's a solid fucking movie. Like, I, I don't think like and I think that you could make the argument for a variety of reasons for this, whether it's from performances, whether it's for, you know, the score and the songs like 
but also like to your point like i mean it's visually gorgeous and it's his directorial debut like that's crazy and i think that there's there is something to be said about this to say well this does kind of feel like the more modern Oscar pick, Oscar pick at this point. And like, if it does seem to be the Oscar bait, then if Oscar bait looks like this, then I'll de- definitely take this over, say like the Oscar bait of the aughts or the nineties or the eighties or beyond of that. And like, I think there's something that's elevated to this. And I don't think that it's getting the appreciation that it definitely should deserve. I think it's, it's gotten this sort of like snarky, cynical take on like critics that were just tired of seeing this remake. That's actually gone through this far. I don't know. I, I just feel like people have, slammed this movie or smeared this movie over the last two months for no fucking reason i just i can't think of anything other than the fact that maybe it took the place of something that they they also love but you also have two films you could easily slam these criticisms on with green book and bohemian rhapsody but i don't know clearly i went into this this episode going off on bohemian rhapsody and green book so i apologize going back to this and even lapsing it over into editing a little bit you're really seeing to go back to what we were discussing in the first half of the show, this shift in what the Oscars are considering a prestige movie. And I think especially in editing, there's an interesting trend emerging where, and you see this fluctuating from year to year, but the film editing Oscar tends to also honor films with the most editing as much as anything, (laughs) which is something you can see here with Bohemian Rhapsody, Vice and Black Klansman. These are all montage heavy films these are quick moving, especially in the case of the vice and even in black Klansman in its own way functions at roughly an equivalent speed. You know, these are quick movies, which is an interesting shift because if we're talking about the Oscar movie, then being kind of stately composed, easy to follow, I would say the median BPM of the average Oscar movie is really speeding up. It's funny though. I don't know if you guys saw that video about Bohemian Rhapsody. Just taking a scene from Bohemian Rhapsody, taking the the sound out, and just looking at the number of cuts. It's kind of taken three Liam Neeson climbing over a fence level, like quick cutting between people in an awkward way, kind of uh, sloppiness, which is odd. So it's it's especially interesting that they're solidifying this as an editing pick yeah i would actually i really do feel like it's a case of just people have just remember something that looked wild on screen i mean because other than green book which i think is actually pretty old school and also even bohemian rhapsody even if it does have that sort of music video quality towards the end most of these choices have a substantial marking on on just playing with format and medium i mean like black Klansman with that coda um and just the quick pacing of the favorite i mean like the, I, i'll be totally honest like i do not like period pieces and i think that they like for, for some reason i just i it's just very sluggish to me like there's always exceptions but the favorite it's not your traditional period piece that moves it's such a pacing that almost feels like you're watching episodes of the office at, po- at points it's it's, cr- it's kind of crazy and i think that that's probably why it was actually uh thrown on there also but i mean i think with the obvious clear winner that if you are actually going with on um, in terms of how they're doing the voting here, I think most people are going to remember Vice just because of what yeah. they've been playing with the media and the format. It's alone. a very like unique essayish yeah. format that it, it is sort of determined by the way it's edited more yeah. than anything else. I want to keep that same idea in mind as we move over into sound then as well, because in the sound categories, you know, we're going to talk about score and song in additional in addition to like the sound production here. Because it's all a little bit of a piece, I think there's an interesting tension once again between, you know, some of these more traditional structures and sounds and some really interesting stuff. Because kicking off with original score, just for instance, 
you have Terrence Blanchard's work on Black Klansman, which keeps mm-hmm. the free jazz motif as so much of Spike Lee's best work. You have Nicholas Brattel's beautiful work on If Beale Street Could Talk, which is a very modernist score in the way it tends to a- approach, you know, this very down, dour sound, but with something that sounds much fresher, much newer. With Black Panther, you have Ludwig Göransson, you know, moving sounds that a Disney movie has never heard before. And then on the other end, you have Alexandra Desplat's work on Isle of Dogs and Mark Shaman's on Mary Poppins Returns, which are both these more traditional, straightforward, composition-heavy works. This is actually my least favorite crop of nominees this year. I I actually think they're very... um I just think they're all too scattered for me. I feel like Mary Poppins gets in because people are like, well, hey, music's a big deal for Mary Poppins, so I'm going to throw the vote on that. I'm actually really surprised that Justin Hurwitz wasn't nominated for First Man given all the other nominations and technical categories for that film. And I think that in terms of the actual original score... I think they're just. I just think there are a lot of options of this past year that were, you know, that that are missing out. I mean, I and, and I and I can't really actually think of a front runner of this group other than maybe. I mean, I we were arguing about this going into our our, our feature last week, Don. But like, I, I really do feel like this is an actual hard one to to pick out because like I I think on the surface, if you want to go with the idea that we've been going in with like what is the voter just going to recognize? I mean, I think Alexander Desplat like I mean, is a clear front runner here. Except I wouldn't even I don't I can't even remember the score for Isle of Dogs for the most part. And like I I mean I am a huge Wes Anderson fan, and we did a whole podcast based on it. So I I, I don't know. This is just a really weird range for me and. Um, for me, I, like, I would have to lean hard on like, like Black Panther because if there is anything that I can kind of take away from this, it just seems that like it finally felt like there was a Marvel score that was worth like remembering. And I'm hoping that that makes a dent with the voters. Hopefully. I, I, I don't know. I mean, what are your takes on these selections here? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm largely inclined to agree. I think three of the, the five nominees are really, really interesting picks. I agree with you with Black Panther, I think because it had such an iconic, sound and then also like again black Klansman having that beautiful sort of jazzy faux like black exploitation tinged score and then yeah. a Beale street could talk is great although like as much as i rag on vice Brittell's score for vice is also really mm-hmm. good um i'm trying to think of other scores that would um you know that would deserve recognition and i think almost anna meredith's score for eighth grade is very yes. unconventional oh my god yeah well but i think here there's an interesting dichotomy with this category this year where most of the most acclaimed scores of the year were either ineligible or because of the oscars extremely weird original score policies mm-hmm. namely basically if you're a composer and you use something that you've ever used on anything else anywhere in your score it is yeah. ineligible hence the late johan johansson's work on Mandy, not that that was ever going to get an Oscar nomination, but it wasn't even eligible. Um, What about, what about Tom York's Asperia then though? Tom York and Johnny Greenwood were both eligible this year and their scores didn't make it through. But again, these are more experimental sounds. Right. And even for bigger traditional stuff, I wouldn't have been mad about uh, John Powell's score for Solo, A Star Wars Story actually being nominated too. Because I think for that kind of big budget, bombastic space opera stuff, it's a really good, interesting twist on it mm-hmm. in a way that like Michael Giacchino couldn't really manage in like the two weeks he had to score Rogue One. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I just am like really disappointed with the, some of the snubs that they had in categories that, that seem to have some sort of clear front runners in the, in that area. I mean, like, look, I know like hereditary was snubbed, you know, from top to bottom, but mm-hmm. that, that score for, by Colin Stetson is just like so essential to that movie. And I mean, the same thing, I guess you could make the sense of like Tony Collette as well, but I don't know. I just think like, 
I think like they always tend to get score just brutally wrong with the Oscars and there always is at least like one or two like uh, scores in there that you can kind of lean on and be like yeah all right I'd be comfortable with this going I don't know because this year I just like and I and I love Terrence Blanchard but like for for me Black Klansman the thing that I remembered more was just the original song or the or the not the original songs but the song the soundtrack alone like because I feel like the soundtrack was so over like overpowering compared to the score in that movie. Well, and I think it brings us to a different discussion about how we reward original scores mm-hmm. in awards. Like, are you valuing the listenability of it? by itself or are you viewing it in the context of the film because i think hereditary is not a very listenable score no it's very harsh it's very atonal Agreed. and everything oh, yeah. but it's perfect for hereditary mm-hmm. so like what do you value like imagine imagine if like you played pieces from a score uh at the oscars yeah. you know like imagine hereditary winning an award and like something screechy from colin stetson coming while the nominee is like while the winner's like walking up to the That's, stage that would be hilarious it but, would be great but i i also think there's another question it's like i believe that the scores are that are only eligible are all those that are actually the movies that are eligible for like best picture and for all the other awards uh-huh. see which is like what always frustrates me to no end because at that point you're actually not really awarding the best original score you're rewarding the best original score of this selection of films that you've deemed proper for this best picture and the ones that Campaign. But I mean, exactly. that's, but that's, that's the Oscars conundrum in a sentence. True, but, you, but, but I feel in other categories, you you tend to get, you know, things that eke through. I mean, like, look at Willem Dafoe's nomination this year or like even like Richard E. Grant or I mean, like there there's there tends to always be like with those sort of categories, you can get the, you can get the outliers. But with score, it always has to be tied to like some of the bigger films, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and even. You know, if we're talking about the Oscars as representative of all these much larger dialogues, I want to close on talking about the sound mixing and editing categories because, first of all, these are the likeliest ones to get cut from the telecast, so we'll give them some love. But also because in looking at these nominees before we recorded here today, I noticed something really interesting in that if you look at the crop of movies honored, namely Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, Roma, A Quiet Place, and A Star is Born... These are all, in one regard or another, big theater movies Mm -hmm. meant to be played at the loudest volumes in the biggest and most well-tuned rooms possible. And I think it's really interesting because if you're talking about trends to take away, the movie that's coming back into the fashion is the movie you have to go to a theater to watch. Yeah, true. And then, but then you also get things like Roma, which also brought into mind that that particular discussion, where like a Netflix original film is nominated for Best Picture. Something that where where there's a lot there's a lot of argument about like you have to see Roma in a theater, mm-hmm. but then there becomes questions of accessibility there too. So I think there's also in an age where we all have home theaters, or at least a larger portion of us do, like have huge big screen TVs and you know sound bars and stuff. Like there is an element to which you can approximate. The home theater, the theater experience at home. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I mean, especially with when you think of something like First Man. Like, I didn't get the chance to see it in IMAX, which was I really wish I yeah, would I have. Yeah, on that too. But I, but I saw the screener, and it was in our house with the sound bar, and you definitely can discern like, holy shit! Like the sound design and the collage in this is 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 unreal and is immaculate. Um, having said that, I do think that there is like some sort of push here towards getting the people to back into like the, the, the theaters based on like the, the nominees alone, because like all of these films, you're right, Dom. I mean, like they are, they are warranted theatrical experiences. And, um, you know, even something like a quiet place, which, you know, people can write off as a horror movie. Like, I don't think that movie will be 
as compelling and, and at home than it will be like when you actually see it in the theaters. I really don't like I and I haven't rewatched it since the theaters yet. But um, I mean, I guess the irony of this is all is that like I can't even remember the last time I went to a theater where I wasn't distracted by someone like talking or something like that. But so <laughs> who knows? But I think like. Yeah, I, I do think most, the majority of these pictures are for sure designed strictly for the theater. Um, even Roma, I mean, like, I mean, especially Roma, actually. But well, and I think we're all kind of coming around to a point here where, you know, the Oscars are never like you said earlier in the show, Clint. The Oscars are never going to be a critics awards symposium. They're never actually going to be able to satisfy the entire viewing audience because that's the diversity of movies in a nutshell. Someone is going to be mad somewhere all the time that their movie didn't get in. And I think what we're seeing, though, is a push towards the things that lean into spectacle in one sense or another a little bit more. And that's taking kind of a broad definition because anything from Star is Born to, again, A Quiet Place can be spectacle when executed well. And I think what's going to be really interesting is seeing come February 24th, what the dialogue is going to become, how it's going to shift, and as always, how it's going to impact the Oscars next year and onward. But with that, we're going to bring the Oscars 2019 edition of Miniography to a close. That's all for our January edition. We will be back in mid-February with a Valentine's Day miniography to be determined. If you want to know what we're going to be discussing for next month's episode, stay tuned to our Facebook page, Filmography of Filmmakers Podcast, where you can get all of our updates on new releases, things we're looking at, assorted odds and ends that we're just enjoying, and what have you. You can find me at Consequence of Sound again. All of my film and now television work can be found there. Where can the good people of the internet find you two? You can find me on Twitter at Clint Worthing. You can also find some of my film and TV work at Consequence of Sound and some of my other work at uh, what will now be The Spool come Friday, February the 1st. So you can find that at thespool.net. As an addendum to the episode you've just heard, you can also read my and Michael's Oscars 2019 Who Will Win, Who Should Win predictions piece on Consequence of Sound. In that one, we go into a little more detail on who we think is taking it home in each category and who we wish was taking it home. Thank you again to you two for joining me. Thank you to Michael and to Kat Blackard for all of the support at Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us... On iTunes, Podchaser, and Spotify, you can also leave reviews of the show there. Please feel inclined to leave a review if you like the show. We always dearly do appreciate your feedback. We're also not nearly the only Consequence Podcast Network production on air right now. You can also check out The Opus, Discography, The Who, This Must Be The Gig, The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, Halloweenies, a Nightmare on Elm Street podcast, and Kyle Meredith with. Miniography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we'll see you all in February. Consequence Podcast Network.